Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. If you go and you sort of research that, where that came from, you could come up with a couple of places. One is um, Earl Scruggs, a bluegrass artist. Or, if you like blues, you could also go to Albert King. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Lord, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to die. I long for the day that I'll have a new birth instead of grieving here on earth. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Or how about this one? Um, everybody wants to be better, to be our authentic self, but nobody wants to change. That's uh, by the renowned theologian D.E. Cook, um, uh, who is resident theologian along with S.M. York, um, who is also the other theologian of the, the real theologian of Cold Spring Church, Steve York, who spoke this morning at our sunrise service. Everybody wants to be better. We all want to be our authentic self. But we don't want to change. Because change is war. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? It's like, okay, I'm going to change. You know, there's something about me. There's, I need to improve. I need to be better. And we start on that journey. And then it's like, literally, it seems like all hell breaks loose. It's like you know, the, the, the universe comes against us. Change is war. On Friday night, we had our Good Friday service, and it was a contemplative service to reflect on the reality and the brutality of the cross, of the suffering that Jesus went through as he was crucified, as he was betrayed by those closest to him, as those that he had invested three years in ran and hid. And as I was sitting there and I was reflecting on the, the reality of the cross, one of the, I think the, the whisper of the Holy Spirit in my ear was, this is evil's response to righteousness. This is what evil does to righteousness. That, that any time that righteousness, any time goodness tries to rise up, that evil is there, and it, it is violent against goodness. Change is, change is war. And yet, we come this morning, we come on Easter morning in this rhythm of worship, in this rhythm of remembering, to remember that resurrection happens. You know, the Green Berets, uh, they, they were up at 6.30 out here on the patio sitting shivering under blankets as we, were, as we were celebrating Easter morning in our sunrise service and, and waiting. And, then, and you know what happened this morning? The sun came up again. And it was just a gorgeous day. It was a beautiful day. The sun came up over there, over the, over the hill, Resurrection happens. We remember that. And I want us to, to look at the resurrection story. I want us to revisit those words that are told in the Gospels of the telling of the resurrection of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 24, verse 1. It'll also be up here on the screen, or you can open up your electronic device and go there if you're using the Bible app, um, then all of our notes and the scriptures are there within the Bible app with the under events. 
And let me read um, this morning Luke chapter 24, starting verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter, he rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So let's just take a moment and sort of think through this story. There's this group of women who on Easter morning, on that third day, the day after the Sabbath, where they weren't allowed to go and to do the work of burial, to do the work of the preparation of Jesus' body. They had to wait. And, and this group of women, they had been with Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. In fact, they were the last at the cross. They knew what they were going to see because they had experienced it. They had stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus said those final words, it is finished, and he died. They were there when the soldiers came, tired of waiting for those three people to die, Jesus in the middle and a thief on each side. And so they broke the legs of the thieves to, in order that they would suffocate and they could be done. But when they looked at Jesus, they saw that he was dead. But just to make sure, they took a spear and they shoved it up under his ribs and so that blood and water flowed out of Jesus. Th these women saw what happened. And they were probably there as well when Nicodemus asked if Jesus' body could be taken down and it was put into this tomb. They knew what they were coming to. They, they knew the reality of the situation. And so they came to prepare the body, to properly prepare the body for burial. And they went into that, that tomb, and remember within that time frame, uh, it would have been a cave. It would have been a, a, a hole in a rock where the body of Jesus had been placed. And it was borrowed. It wasn't even Jesus's. It was a borrowed tomb. And there was a rock in front of it that was there to keep people from stealing the body or stealing artifacts that were with the body. And that's what they came with this expectation. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going we're to 
care. We're going to do this last act of love towards somebody that we've known and loved deeply and we watched die. But then they get there and, and reality gets bent. Have you, ever, have you ever had that happen to you? It's like, okay, this is what reality is. You go into a situation and all of a sudden it's like, that's not what it, you, you find. And you're like, whoa, what? You know, it's like the matrix, right? You know, it's like, you know, things that like move. And what they knew wasn't lining up with what they were experiencing. What's, what's going on here? Trevor Melton uh, is the founder of a hydrogen-powered truck company called Nikola. Um, first name of Nikola, uh, Tesla. And he was uh, on 2020 Forbes list called 12 Under 40, listing the youngest billionaires on the Forbes 400. So he was within the top 12. Uh, 38 years old, uh, he was a college dropout, and, but he had this vision, this dream of zero emission truck maker, Nikola Motor, and so he joined the ranks of uh, America's richest millennials after tripling his net worth within one year. But there's a bit of a problem. You see, um, he did that by lying. See, because this truck was supposed to be, you know, fueled on hydrogen power. And in fact, they even made a video of this truck moving, you know, clearly under its own power, going on this flat, straight road. Well, the problem was is that what they did actually was they filmed a truck going downhill, but they adjusted the camera to make it look like it was actually under its own power. Actually, it was just coasting. He's been convicted of fraud and is sentenced, waiting for his sentencing to prison. I mean, is that what's going on with the story of Jesus here? It's like, okay, you know, just, we're going to change the camera angle. We're just going to be a little bit, you know, different. But here, you know, there's angels that show up. There's these, these men in, in dazzling white who are giving a message to say, what are you doing here? And then there's appropriate response of, these women, confusion and fear, which is an appropriate response when reality bends for us, right? When we're like, this isn't what I was expecting. They were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. There's a different reality that these angels revealed and, and that different reality is, is that what you are expecting isn't what you are going to find, because Jesus is alive. So, of course, what they did, because their reality was shifted, it was challenged, they have a new reality, they understand, they've experienced it, they've seen it, they want to share it. So they go back, excited to tell the eleven. And to tell the others that are there, that have been gathered together, that are in hiding because they're expecting to be, you know, killed next, they go to them. But there was no experience of those 11, of what these women experienced. And so, verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. How about you this morning? 
Are you sitting here this morning and you're like, okay, I'm here because somebody invited me. I'm, be, I'm, I'm being nice to the family. I'm being nice to a friend. But really, this is your response. It's like, you know, this is an idle tale. I, I don't believe this at all. You are in really good company. You are in really good company. The people who are closest to Jesus, who walked with him for three years, who heard out of his mouth his words, their response was, this is a, this is a fairy tale. I don't believe it. Except for one. Now, it does seem that Peter was sort of in that group, groupthink. And yet, there was something in him that motivated him to run to the tomb. Remember, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe him. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Doubt and wonder intermingling. Doubt and wonder in the same moment. Have you ever had that? Do you think it's possible? Let me ask you a question. Can you believe and not understand? Can you believe something and, and yet not really fully understand what's going on? Well, I put to you this morning is that this is actually a very common reality in your life. Let me just give you a very practical example. Has anybody here ever driven a car? Anybody ever driven a car? All right, good. There's a few of you. Good, that's great. Okay, so when you're driving the car, in case you haven't, this is one of the things that happens, is that your right foot pushes on this little pedal. Now, what happens when that happens? What's, what's going on? See, now I've got a 1929 Model A that my grandfather bought brand new in 1929 in, in, in Payette, Idaho. And so there's this little pedal, metal pedal, and when you push on that pedal, there's these rods that are connected to some other rods that have joints and then connected to another rod that's connected to this carburetor that leaks and smells like gas, and then it pours more gas into this little four-cylinder engine that has less horsepower than probably your riding lawnmower that you have at your house. And so, and then there's, those pistons start going more and more because there's more gas that's going on in there, and it goes faster unless you're going up a steep hill, and then you just hope that you keep going. That's what happens when you push on the gas pedal. You probably, maybe you didn't know that. How about your car? Now, your car is probably a little bit newer. In fact, if you have a, 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 a sort of more, more modern car, what you do when you push on the gas pedal is, is that there's a little computer in your car that goes, hey, they're pushing on the gas pedal. We need to get more gas to the engine. And so that computer talks to another computer who talks to another computer, and you hope that they all work, and then more gas goes into those cylinders, and then whew, and you go, which you think is really important because you're passing a truck, and there's another truck coming towards you, and you want it. You believe it's going to work, even though you don't quite understand how it does. I won't even go into an electric car because <laughs> I don't understand it, but I believe it. In a week and a half, I'm going to be going to Africa to work with uh, a number of leaders. And as I was laying out my, my prayer um, 
uh, prayer letter for it, one of the things I started counting up how many hours I'm going to be in the, in the air during this trip. And I'm going to be in an airplane in the air 60 to 65 hours. Anybody here ever flown in an airplane? Do you understand it? You believe it, right? I mean, I'm going to get in this airplane, and I'm going to sit down, and there's going to be some people up front, some men and women up front, and looking out a window, and they're going to start pushing buttons, and they're going to start actually pushing some, you know, physical things, and that plane's going to start moving, and it's going to go down the, the, the runway, and it's going to go faster and faster and faster and then faster, and then pretty soon, 162 people and all their crap is going to go up into the air. And, and we're going to go all the way up to 30,000 feet, and we're just going to go on the other side of the world and the other end of the world. And I'm going to have my noise-canceling headphones on, and I'm going to believe it, but I'm not going to quite understand it. Can you believe and understand? See, belief and understanding aren't necessarily put together in the gospel stories. I encourage you sometime, go through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four books that tell the story of Jesus' life, and every one of them is the story of the resurrection because it is the central story of Christianity. You cannot have Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you will see over and over again is this phrase, and they did not believe. The people closest to Jesus, and they did not believe. They didn't understand. You know, we have um, three centers of wisdom that all of us shape our being. So for some of you here this morning, some of you want to understand to believe. You need to have the logical explanation. You need to have the proofs of all of your questions in order for you to believe. You've got to know it. In the story of the resurrection, after Jesus resurrected, there's a story where he's walking along a road to Emmaus, or there's two people walking along a road to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them. And, and they're talking about what has happened with Jesus, and they're all upset and all this stuff that's going on. And, and so Jesus engages with the conversation with them and says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He engaged in an intellectual conversation with those who were questioning and doubting. And he proved to them through the Hebrew scriptures of who he was and what had happened. Maybe that's where you need to be. You know what, if that's where, where, where you're at, you just, man, I need to know this. Then you need to talk to our resident theologian, S.M. York, all right? He'll be out in the lobby. And but here, I would just warn you, get a cup of coffee first because he has a lot of things to say about this. He would love to have that conversation with you about why we can have, we can believe in Jesus because the life, death, resurrection, and teachings of Jesus are intellectually rigorous. It is not a fairy tale. Now, some of you want to know through experience to believe. You need to feel it. You need to, to know the, the, the emotional sensory reality of Jesus, that he is real. In Luke 24, after Jesus is resurrected, he shows up in a room with a, with a group of his disciples. And this is what he says. He said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. 
And while they were still disbelieved for joy, did you catch that? And while they still disbelieved, Jesus is standing in front of them saying, hey, touch me. Touch me. Look, I'm not a spirit. I'm real. And they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before him. They experienced Jesus. He met them where they were. The life, death, resurrection, and teachings of Jesus are experientially engaging. It's not a philosophy. It's not some sort of philosophical, you know, intellectual exercise that we just sort of throw out here. It's like, oh yeah, you know, it's an interesting idea to think about occasionally. It's experientially engaging. Now, some of you want to live through doing to believe that I've got to do it to prove it. There's got to be some rubber meets the road. There's got to be some reality in the way that I live my life for this to be real, and Jesus has to be a part of that. Some of you who are familiar with the story might remember the name of one of Jesus' disciples, closest disciples, a guy by the name of Thomas. Have you ever heard the phrase, doubting Thomas? It comes from his story. Because one of the, the times that Jesus showed up with his disciples, Thomas wasn't there. Because remember, they're all hiding because they're afraid that they're going to be next of getting killed. And Thomas isn't with the, the other disciples, but Jesus shows up. He reveals himself. And so they go and they tell Thomas, Jesus is alive. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I can touch his hand. Do it. You need to physically be engaged. And you know what Jesus does? He shows up. And he says, Thomas, come here. Touch my hands. And Thomas like, no, 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 no. Come here. <laughs> Touch me. The life, death, resurrection teachings of Jesus are practically transformative. It's not a feeling. It's a lifestyle. This last week, uh, my wife Pam and I went, spent the afternoon on a date together, and we were down at the uh, outlet malls in Folsom. And, uh, and when I parked, uh, there was a, I parked next to a car that was facing out. I pulled in, and I looked over, and there's a young man who was there. He's on his phone, you know, doing his thing. And I noticed on his neck, he had a neck tattoo, and the neck tattoo was three crosses, you know, like the, the Christian symbol, the three crosses. Which is sort of, I mean, a lot of people have cross tattoos, but three crosses is sort of a little unusual. It, 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 it indicated to me a, a little bit more connection with the story of what was going on. Because, you know, there's the tall cross in the middle, Jesus, and then the two shorter crosses on each side. And so I'm like, hey, Jesus is risen. And you looked up and you're like, huh, what? It's like, three crosses, Easter. He goes, hell yeah. I'm like, All right, buddy, yeah. Okay. Happy Easter, dude. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to judge there, but it's like, okay, I'm not sure he gets it. I think it's an art form on his neck, but I'm not sure he gets it. The life, death, resurrection teachings of Jesus are practically transformative. It's not a feeling. It's not a tattoo. It's a lifestyle. Now, faith is bringing all those together into alignment. 
Faith is a moment. In each of those stories, there was a moment. Thomas had a moment to believe. Those women had a moment to believe. Peter had a moment to believe. You have a moment to believe. Have you engaged into the moment of belief? Have you responded to Jesus meeting you where you are in your questions? There's a moment of faith. There's a moment of belief. Now, faith is also, though, a lifetime. I was reflecting to my wife, Pam, this last week as I was preparing and thinking about the Easter story that, that the longer I walk with Jesus, the longer I walk in faith, the more of a mystery the story is to me. Anybody ever have that experience? It's like, what? wow. I understand, but I, 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 don't, I don't understand. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Have you ever experienced that? Has it ever been a part of your reality? So it's a moment and it's a lifetime. What do you need to start? What do you need to start? Do you notice that wherever a person was, Jesus met them, either intellectually, experientially, in the practical reality of a lifestyle? What do you need? And do you dare to ask Jesus to meet you where you are? Because here's what I know. Jesus will meet you. If you ask him, if you're open to hear from him, if you're open to encountering Jesus, he will meet you wherever you are. But you have to dare to ask. Now, now here's the problem. Here's the problem that when we think about Easter, Easter addresses a problem that we all have to acknowledge. And the problem is this, is that you have a sin problem. Don't you love it when somebody stands up there and points? You know, it's like, you have a sin problem. But, you know, here's the thing is, is that you have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. Scott McKnight, who is a true theologian, he was one of my professors in seminary, he wrote a book called A Community Called Atonement. He says, that is, sin in the Bible is the choice to go it alone, to be free in the sense of independence, to achieve, like God, absolute freedom. But herein lies the problems. Icons, and he uses this term to describe those who are created in God's image, who are called to reflect his image. We are pictures. We are representations of the image of God, icons. Icons are made for union with God, communion with others, love of self, and care for the world. And sin breaks that because we go it alone. We, we say, I'm, I'm going to do it myself. So it comes to this question of what is your identity? Now, that's a loaded question in the world that we live in today. Because there's a lot of conversation around identity. In this phrase, I identify as. I identify as a progressive. I identify as a conservative. I identify with a gun, gun lobby. I identify with this, with that. And we can go within the whole sexuality realm. Identify. The sin of our world is self-identification. 
You see, Christianity is finding our identity in Christ. And in Mike Knight's words, we are to find our identity as icons, as ones who are created in the image of God and re- are called to reflect the image of God in the world. And redemption, atonement, which is a story of Easter, of death and resurrection, of new life, restores the icon, restores the image, requiring us to God-identify, not self-identify. Because when we self-identify, we become God. We become God. And there are as many identities as there are people. Because we, we identify ourselves. There's a story in the Old Testament of the Exodus, of the people of Israel being in slavery and in Egypt, and God calling a man by the name of Moses to deliver the people out of, of Egypt. It is the story that describes the whole of Scripture. It's a really important story. And within that story, uh, Moses is called by God to go and tell Pharaoh to let his, you know, God's people go. And Moses has this response to God. says, who should I tell Pharaoh is saying this? And God says, tell Pharaoh I am sends you. It's the name of God, I am. Now, if you fast forward into the New Testament in the life of uh, ministry of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things you'll see is a Greek phrase called that says ego a me, which is I am. Where Jesus refers to himself as I am. And it really ticks off people. So much that they want to kill him. Why do they want to kill him? Because I am is the name of God. And Jesus is saying, I am God. And they get it. Self-identity breaks relationships with everyone because we are our ultimate authority. And it's all about us. The difference between God, who ultimately self-identifies, who is the I am, is his identity is righteous. It is loving. It is holy. It is perfection. And I got some bad news for you and me. You're not. You're not God, and you're not perfect. I'm not God. I'm not perfect. Everybody wants to be better, to be our authentic self, but nobody wants to change. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this. The more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Jesus came for us to find a new way of being. Too often the church, too often the message is either said or heard. Christianity is all about a change of my doing. I just need to do better. I just need to to do more good stuff, and then God's going to be happy with me. Other people are going to get along with me, and I hopefully will get into heaven. And that is not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I have come 
that you can have a new life. There is a new being that you will be. I am. See, the resurrection reveals your true I am. The resurrection gives you the path to authenticity. Do you want to be fully yourself, to be fully authentic? The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives you the pathway to do that. And the resurrection gives us the power of authenticity. And the resurrection gives us the picture of what authenticity, true authenticity is. And here's the thing. Here's the tough thing. I am is found in the death, resurrection, and love of Jesus. One of my core verses in my life, very early on, that God put in my life, is found in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. The I am of the Christian is I am crucified. I am dead. Jesus was crucified. I must be crucified. Jesus was resurrected. I will be resurrected. My I am is found in Jesus and nothing else, including me. And he has the authority. He has the power. He has the right to do that because he is holy. He is perfect. Being true to me, being authentic, can only be found by living in a surrendered relationship of love with Jesus. Remember at the end of Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, love conquers. Love conquers. Love conquers even me. Love conquers even you. Do you know what the biggest problem in the world is? The biggest problem in the world is not a former president, not a present president, not a future president. The biggest problem in the world is not a, a, a Russian, you know, person, leader. It's not a Chinese leader. You know what the biggest problem in the world is? Me. It's me. You know what the biggest problem in the world is? You. Do you know what the greatest blessing in the world can be? Jesus in me. Do you know what the greatest blessing in the world can be? Jesus in you. Icons are made for union with God, communion with others, love of self, and care for the world. So how do we do that? What, what, what's that path? How do, we, how do we have Jesus in us, that we become the greatest blessing? By saying yes. By saying yes. There's a card in the chair in front of you that says, say yes to Jesus on it. It's how we describe this moment of faith that engages a lifetime of faith. The moment of faith of saying yes to Jesus. And we talk about it in a very simple way of A, B, C, of accepting who you are, that I'm the biggest problem in the world. I'm a cracked icon in need of resurrection. 
I need saved. Accept who you are. Believe who Jesus is. That perfect love, revealing love perfectly through his death and resurrection and life. That's who Jesus is. Perfect love, revealing love perfectly. That he lived, he died, he rose again to life. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. But then it's about choosing to commit. I mean, it's, it's about, you know, there's a, there's a moment of faith that leads us into a lifetime. And that's stepping across the line. And it can only happen by surrendering to Jesus. And saying, not my own. It's not my agenda. It's not me. It's you, God. Because love conquers. <laughs> love conquers. Love conquers me. Love conquers you. Love conquers everything in the world. There is nothing greater than love. Than perfect love revealed perfectly. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, so what is your response? It's, it's to be like Peter. It's to be like Peter. It's like... I, 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 it seems like a fairy tale. I, I don't believe, but maybe, maybe I, Jesus said this in, in his words in the New Testament. He said, the only amount of faith that you have is you need to have faith the size of a mustard seed in order to move a mountain. And that mountain is you. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's just a little tiny thing that it but has huge impacts. Be like Peter. Explore the possibility. Peter ran to the tomb and doubt and wonder intermingled. Is that where you are this morning? Now, there's one last thing. I, I want to make an invitation. And an invitation is to, to talk. So maybe you're at this place right now. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, I, I'm, um, so doubt and wonder. I, there is some wonder. There's more doubt. And I, I would be open to having a conversation. So here's my offer is I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'd love to sit down. And, and here's what I'll give you. I'll give you a free cup of coffee or tea or water or whatever, soda. And I want to give you a book. I want to give you a book. It's called The Cure. What if God isn't who you think he is, and neither are you? It's a short book. I love short books. I have a short attention span. I love short books. And, but the most important thing is I would love just to have a conversation with you. So if you would like a conversation, then all you have to do is you have to take that card that Daniel talked about. You have to put your name and, and contact information on there and just say, um, Coffee with David on the back or something like that. We have really smart people in our office. They'll figure it out. Okay? And now I am going to Africa in about a week and a half and, and be gone. So it might take a little bit to arrange our schedules, to, but, but we'll make that happen because I would love to talk to you and to see where faith and wonder, doubt and wonder come together for you. Would you pray with me as we end today? And as we have just sort of this attitude and posture of prayer, I want to start with a prayer that 
if, if saying yes, maybe right now here you're like, okay, I think I have more wonder than doubt. And, and that voice is saying to you, today is the day for you to say yes. It's a moment of faith. Then just a prayer like this. It's not magic words, but a prayer like this. Jesus, this, this morning I accept who I am. That I, I am a cracked icon. And there is a brokenness that I have tried to fix, and I can't. I need help. I need you, Jesus. And Jesus, I believe as much as I can that you lived and that you died and that you're alive. You resurrected. I believe that you can save me and that you love me. And right now, in this moment, I choose to surrender. I choose to commit to follow you as best I know and to enter into a lifetime of faith. Jesus, for all of us, I pray that as you heal and bring together our cracked icons, our reflection of your glory, that you would use us in the world today that love would conquer, that it wouldn't be our love that we remember we love because you first loved us, that anything we have is an overflow of what we've allowed you to pour into us. And so we, we expect this morning to have met you and heard from you, Jesus. And we expect you to pour more into us. And Lord, we ask that it would pour into the world and your love would win, your love would conquer, beginning with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.